This Front Row Rugby episode appeared originally on YouTube. My guest today is Springbok legend and former prop Heinrich Rogers. Heinrich, welcome to Front Row Rugby. Thanks a lot, uh, Peter. You must be running out of stock that you're sort of scratching the bottom of the barrel now with uh, all geriatrics. <laughs> no, not at all. Remember, I make the point always, if you have played for the Springboks, that makes you a hero and a legend, 100%. You just keep in mind, I'm now at the age where the older I get, the better we used to be. <laughs> just before we begin our interview with Heinrich, let's have a look at the trivia question for today. In 2000, who replaced Nick Mallett as the Springbok coach? If you know the answer to that question, you can put it in the comment section down below. We'll also find out if Heinrich knows the answer to that question, but we'll do that at the end of our interview. Heinrich, let's get started in 1992. You were 30 years old at the time when South Africa returned to international rugby against New Zealand and Australia. But I'm keen to hear from you just before it was announced that we were returning to international rugby. How close were you to retirement? You know, at 30, you're probably nearing the end of your career at that time. These days, the guys start you know, thinking of, of retiring much later, 35 or 36, I would say. But in our days, if you got to 30, it, you were getting close to retirement. Um, yeah, so but at least we, we got the word that international rugby was going to open up, and it obviously boosted energy a lot. Um, and I, I gave myself sort of a good chance to to make it um, still. Um, I eventually retired at 33, which was in those years deemed a sort of late retirement, definitely not the, today. How excited were you to find out that you were in the squad to play the All Blacks and the Wallabies? Obviously, a schoolboy dream. You hear this a lot uh, for every little boy who grows up playing rugby. The All Blacks is the ultimate test that you want to play. And I... I myself spent a year in New Zealand um, as a youngster, sort of just after my national service training. I, I lived in New Zealand for a year and I played for the County Colts. Uh, in those years, I don't know if you remember Andy Dalton. He used to captain uh, the uh, county senior side and I captained the county's junior side at that stage. So it was a massive, massive excitement for me when I eventually made that side. Remember at that stage, I played in two tests in 1989, which were my first two tests against the World 15. And there was quite a uh, you know, time between 89 and, and 92. We had to wait. It was three years before we could play international rugby eventually. So it was something big at that time. And I think there's a funny story about how you actually found out that you were going to be playing against the All Blacks. So I don't know how we made our arrangements, but my young fiancé and I then, you know, arranged our wedding day exactly the same day the Springbok side was going to be announced, the first side. So um, the Springbok coach at that stage was also my Bulls coach, and I so we came a long way. And uh, just sort of on the steps of the of the church after the wedding, after the wedding took place, um, he actually came up to me and said, listen, you can't go away on honeymoon too far because uh, you've got to be at Springbok training on Monday afternoon. And he walked away. So, so I got a little hint there, there's something coming. Um, and my wife still today is 
often still reminding me that I owe a honeymoon, a proper honeymoon. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so Heinrich, I actually had Ian MacDonald on the show a few episodes ago. Uh, I'm going to put a link up to that over here. And he said that it was actually a miracle that the Springboks got so close to the All Blacks, 27-24, as we know, was the final score. And Ian said that one of the problems was that because there were so many guys in the team that had never played for the Springboks before, that that inexperience was actually something that was a massive disadvantage. Would you go along with that? No, absolutely. You know, even in, in today's rugby where there's so much happening, um, you need consistency and you need a team that has played together for some time before you see success. And um, Ian is quite right. I agree with him. There's a lot of different players throwing into the mix at that time. And remember, with us not having a uh, professional rugby or uh, international rugby, sorry, at that stage, um, it meant that our local competition was actually our test arena. So we, uh, apart from players not getting together for some time, you also had a bit of a division between you know bulls and lions and province and it was not something deliberate i think it was just uh, how it evolved over time where there was a hell of a rivalry between the different provinces so it really took time initially um and and it is absolutely a miracle that we got so close we're going to talk more about those divisions that you mentioned, the, the so-called provincialism. But I just want to stay with that test match at Ellis Park. Your direct opponent that day was Richard Lowe. What was it like scrumming against him? Uh, remember, Richard Lowe was the lucid. I was lucid as well. So Richard was lucid on the other side. Oh, so, you, so you scrummed against Olo Brown. Is that right? I scrummed against Olo Brown, yeah. So, yeah, and obviously you watch these guys over time, you know, because they were great names in, in New Zealand at that time. Um and it was it was magic. I th- actually thought we we did pretty well against those those front rows, and uh, we we came out quite good out of it. Um, yeah, Richard Lowe was also he was quite an aggressive sort of player. We were more, more, more or less the same size at that time, so it was nice to to measure yourself against someone who had much more experience than we had at that stage. Now, I also had Johan Steger on the show a few episodes ago, and I'll, I'll also put a link up to that over here. And Steger was speaking about scrumming against the likes of, you know, Lowe, Brown, and Sean Fitzpatrick. And he said that Sean Fitzpatrick was the king of dirty tricks in the scrum. Is there anything that you can tell me about that? Listen, what I remember very well from mentioning that I'm Sean Fitzpatrick, um, Johan Steiger actually got onto the field due to a dirty trick from uh, Fitzpatrick because in the first half, I, Fitzpatrick was, uh, we were sort of breaking up from a line out and he was heading towards Lars Wurter to, to hit him from behind. And I put my leg in in front of him. He fell over my leg to stop him. He fell over my leg and I pulled my hamstring in the process. So I left the field at halftime um, not able to, to complete the game. And that also sort of uh, resulted in me not being able to play for in the in the test against uh, the Wallabies. So Yuan played in my you know in my place against that Wallabies. So thankful to him. You should thank um, Fitzpatrick for that. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Okay, so then after those two tests against the All Blacks and the Wallabies, off to Europe for a tour against France and England, and obviously there were lots of uh, midweek games on that tour as well. Uh, the first test against France 
we win. That's our first victory since readmission. What was that like? That's amazing because, I mean, uh, we had no experience on the international arena and it was massive. I mean, you go to France, anyone who's been ever played there, you see the unbelievable atmosphere around the stadium when you get there and there's bands playing in the stands, you know, these brass bands. It's just an unbelievable experience. Um, and to get through that game winning was also a massive surprise, I mean, to many. Uh, but we played well in that first test. I think we probably surprised the, the, the French. Um, they were probably used to a Northern Hemisphere kind of game at that stage. And, and we were new to the scene. Um, the second test, obviously, they <laughs> knew what, what they were up against and uh, we lost the second test. You played at Lucid against the All Blacks, as you mentioned, and f as far as I can tell, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you were playing a tight head against the French. Uh, which of those positions did you actually prefer? No, no my, my position was actually Lucid, so I, I was thrown in on the right-hand side uh, for those two tests. And... Up to today, I always say as a prop who's played there from the age of uh, seven years old, I always say there are not many props who can do that switch uh, successfully both sides. So, you know, I could I could hardly, I, I think I, I, I could do it on that side, but it was a struggle. Uh, you, you always, when you scrum and you're off to the next, uh, the breakdown or whatever, you're always thinking, I will always say, instead of focusing on the game, you're starting to work out what should my next move in the scrum be. And you start to lose focus on, on other things because you have to survive in a position that you're not used to. So I'm a, I'm a great believer in, in the fact that you have to, as a prop, that you specialize in one side. Um, these days, there's much more versatility um, uh, re required. And... Someone like Trevor Nakani really is a is a revelation because he's he's one who stands out for me as someone who was equally um, good both sides of the scrum. But there are not many of them, you know. Uh, Thomas de Tue recently started really performing very well. He struggled for a long time when they moved him at the Sharks from loose head to tight head. These days he's really a pretty good tight head, but it takes a lot of time. So you see, when you start asking me things about the, the positions in the, in the front row, you won't stop me. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that at all. And I think that often the front row guys don't get the same recognition as the wings, for example. Uh, but that's another story. So, uh, Heinrich, you mentioned earlier uh, what we were calling the so-called provincialism, right? This idea that the Northern Transvaal guys at the time were sticking together, or the Transvaal guys were sort of hanging out with themselves, the province guys, and so on and so forth. I want to know from you, on that 1992 tour, what was your experience of that like? Let's first say, you know, it's, it's like a normal sort of situation where initially everything runs smooth and all, all you don't realize that there's sort of a division until the team starts to lose. And that's always, it always happens. Things start to fall apart when the team loses. So we had, I think, the first three games of the of that tour, we lost. Uh, I was fortunate enough, I captained the weekday side again in Marseille where we won the fourth game. That was our first uh, win on the on the weekday tours. Um, but but obviously this the losses started building up a bit of tension. And it's just, as I said earlier, it's, it's normal when people are under stress 
that they they look up, you know, their friends and their circles of of, of uh, comfort, and that's where the sort of uh, pulling back and forth starts. And I particularly uh, noticed it because I had a long, long career at the Bulls. And at that stage, at the 92 tour, I was playing for the Lions. I was in um, yeah, two two years for the Lions. So I, I picked up this, and it, it, it really, it might be uncomfortable, um, but uh, obviously I realized also that it's very difficult for different provincial sides to get together quickly and and everything is, is well. It, it's not that easy. It took many years back, I would say, for the box to to build a cohesion and uh, you know, for things to be completely different these days. Because remember, nowadays they spend much more time together. There are more, may, yeah, absolutely many more games than we used to play. So I think it was just a normal thing that was going to to happen, and uh, sort of forced by by pressure of losing and things not going well. Heinrich, I've had Nas Boerter on the show before, Adrian Richter, also Willy Hills, and they all spoke about that 1992 tour being a difficult tour. And one of the things that Willy actually told me was that the French press made it very difficult in terms of trying to portray you guys as what he called rude Afrikaners. Uh, and Adrian Richter actually made the point that the French would put you in a nice, beautiful hotel in the middle of Paris, but then the training facilities would be like a, a two-hour drive away from there. Um, how did you experience the difficulties of that tour? They made it very, very tough. Absolutely. We... Uh, ended up, I remember one particular, I can't remember the town's name, we ended up quite far out of town um, and the the hotel they put us up in had beds not long enough for the locks in the team. So we had to suddenly on to a, find a new hotel just for the, for the, you know, for the, um, for the locks to have comfortable sleep as well. Uh, so there was a lot of disruption on that tour that, that people weren't aware of. I'm thinking of the, uh, for example, the test in Paris. Uh, we lost. We ended up at the at the after match function. I don't know whether some of the other players told you. And uh, the French was it the test in yeah the test in Paris. That's right. And the French celebrated in the change room or wherever. We waited all night almost for them to arrive at the function. And by I think about twelve at night. The, the team together, NAS, made the decision with the manager, maybe Milan at that stage, to, to leave the function. And uh, so we left as a group without the French arriving. So that, that was a massive outcry in the, in, in the, in the media. Um, yeah, so I, I would say that we probably, it was probably wrong on both ends. Um, uh, but, you know, you understand if you were there as the, as the, as the guests, that we should probably have been notified earlier that the, the function was only going to start at 12. But, the, but that's the other French operate. I mean, they start at late in the evenings. Um, we were new to all of this. So there was a lot of learning uh, at, at that time. Did you at least get to experience any lighter moments on that tour? you sort of picking my brain here and I'm very far back. But uh, no, you, there's, there's lots of fun uh, when you're in a tour and, and sort of the old uh, refrain 
what happens on tour stays on tour kind of thing. No, but uh, it, it was a great tour. In the end, with all the pressure and all the stress we had, all the losses and and things not going as smooth as we as we thought it would be, it was actually it was great. It was a fantastic tour and something I'll cherish for the rest of my life. And then Heinrich, after that tour, that was also the end of your test career as a Springbok. And I mean, I think you only played five test matches. And we know that there were obviously mitigating factors, obviously the, the politics of the time. And then uh, John Williams was replaced by Ian McIntosh and he didn't select you. When you look back now, do you have any regrets? No regrets at all. I mean, obviously, you would have loved to be able to play uh, international rugby at an earlier stage but uh, that's what we had at the time we enjoyed it uh, the rivalry amongst the sort of uh, the provinces at that stage was great so we it was our test rugby that we played um, and I, I had a fantastic career you know I, I really really enjoyed every moment of it um, made great friends across the world um, there's absolutely no regrets how much would you have liked to have played professional rugby? Can you imagine? <laughs> I uh, I ended my career in 1994. That's when I stopped. So earlier, this, you'll find this interesting. Earlier in 95, um, one of the clubs in Pretoria called me and said, listen, you, you've got to think of it. Professional rugby is going to start soon. Why don't you play again? And I said, listen, now I, you know, I've, I've had my time um, uh, I, I've, my time is past, so it's time for me to rest. And he convinced me by saying, listen, um, and I said, I'm not in contention anymore. And he said, listen, but he said, if there's two or three injured players, you're, the, you're next in line. You've got to be ready. And I said, I'm normally you know, quite uh, fit and, and made sure that, I'm, that I arrive at the season quite fit. Uh, and he said, but the only way for you to get fit is to start playing rugby. So let's start at the second team. Come to training this afternoon, you'll play for the second team on Saturday. And so I, I went. I played for Pretoria Rugby Club's second team on a Saturday without much training. Well, I, I stayed yeah, busy, but not really fit enough for, for a proper game. And in the last seconds of the no, dying seconds of the game, literally, I got tackled and broke my leg. And as I as I got carried off the field on a stretcher, my wife came next to walking next to me, and I looked at her. I said, "I think this is the end." <laughs> so that's how my career finished at the start of '95, just missing out on professional rugby. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Well, but what a what a sad way to end, isn't it? Okay, so let's have a look then at that trivia question again from earlier. In 2000, who replaced Nick Mallett? as the Springbok coach. All right, Heinrich, do you know the answer? Wasn't it Jake White? Jake White came slightly after that, actually. Uh, the correct answer is Harry Phil Yun. I think that that's a name that you would be very familiar with. Of course, of course. I had a great, great, great uh, experience with Harry as coach of the Lions when I played there. So I, I have such a high regard for, for Harry, really high regard for him. A lot of people... A lot of people don't give Harry the credit that he deserves. He, I started playing in uh, for the Lions in '92. Yes, it was in '92. Harry took a, a side that were bottom of the log when he took over the Lions, and he he got them into a Curry Cup final two years in a row. And by the time, uh, and unfortunately, he didn't win the Curry Cup. So when he left. People forget that Kitch Kisti took over. Kitch was a brilliant coach, but he took over a side that had experience, 
playing together for quite some time and had experience of playing in finals. That made it much easier. So when, when Kitsch took over, Lions won the Curry Cup. But uh, that's why I say, you know, people underestimate uh, Harry's contribution to Springbok rugby as well. And he was also a very professional person, a very, very um, sort of modern thinking. Uh, so, yeah, I can, uh, it's interesting about if you're talking about coaches alone. Absolutely. And then, you know, just before we wrap it up, just very quickly, um, you, you spoke about Kitsch, uh, Kitsch, you spoke about Harry. Um, John Williams, you had him at, uh, at was, you know, Northern Transvaal still in those days and then at the Springboks. Uh, how would you have described him as a coach? I always say when people say who's the best coach you ever played again uh, under, uh, it's, 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 it's a question that I would always answer in that you, you have different coaches uh, you know, in your life and in your rugby cycle that you learn different things from. And, you know, if you can pick sort of characteristics from, from every single coach that I've been through, you'll, you'll have a perfect coach. So, so with John Williams, it's quite interesting. Maybe you'll find it interesting. I got to know him in, uh, I grew up in Harry Smith in the Free State. We had a, a rugby tour in this, in the Natal South Coast. And he was one of the, um, uh, the coaches at this, at the coaching clinic. On the tournament that I was involved in, so I, I'll never forget this. In I, I captained my school side in grade eleven. I was sort of something that didn't happen at that time. I was busy with my team talk uh, at halftime, and I got a sort of knock on my shoulder, and, and uh, it was John Williams behind me. He said to me, um, "Come and see me after the game." So that was in grade eleven. So he asked me, uh, what are you doing next year? And I said, uh, I'm still, I'm only matric next year. <laughs> he said to me, but I would like to see you at tax one day. So keep in contact and, and tell me what your, your plans are going forward. So I matriculated to Harry Smith. I played Craven Week for three years in a row. Then went to, uh, I was called up to, for national service in Pretoria. Did my two years where I played for the Bulls under 20s. Um, and at the end of that, two-year time, I went to him and I said to him, listen, I, I don't know whether you remember me. He says, yes, I remember you. I said, I want to come to tax, but I just wanted to come and tell you that I'm now leaving. I'm going to go to New Zealand for a year first. So he obviously tried to convince me to come straight to tax first. And so I, I left. I went to New Zealand. And in New Zealand, in those years when you didn't have email and WhatsApp and all of this, I wrote him a, a handwritten uh, letter to tell him how things were going and that I would see him in Pretoria um, the next year, that I would be there. And that's how my relationship with John Williams started, as a grade 11 boy. And, and interestingly enough, I started at Tux in the third team, and those years it worked this way. I played for a whole year in the third team. I obviously thought I should be in the first team, but yeah, to do the whole uh, cycle, play third team, and the next year, for the second team of Ducks, they call the Vizelas until today. I was fortunate enough to be playing for, I was on the Bulls bench from the um, second team of, of Ducks. I was, so just, just interesting. John Williams then took over the Ducks first team, eventually when I made it to the first team. And in 1987, if I can remember correctly, yes, Tux beat Martis at Stellenbosch for the first time in five years. And we had a young Tux side with uh, 
myself, Uli Schmidt, Jan Locke was there, you know, Adolf Malang, all those players were in that tax side. We beat Martis. Martis had a whole province side. And because of that win, it obviously escalated uh, John Williams into becoming a uh, uh, coach of the Bulls and obviously with a successful tax side it made it easier for us young tax players to be to enter into the Bulls side so and unfortunately then our sort of successful cycle at the Bulls also started and that got him into the Springbok uh, coaching job obviously as well and uh, so all these things dovetail you know you have a career that you get different things from different people. And uh, I, I was very fortunate to start with him and then also um, exposed to, to many other coaches through the years. Heinrich Rogers, it has been a total, total pleasure to have you on Front Row Rugby. Thank you so much. And I hope that we can have you on again in the future. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for your time. I enjoyed it. Last time on Front Row Rugby, we had 1995 Rugby World Cup winner Corbus Visser here. You can go and watch that video. It's appearing on the screen right now. Next time, we'll have former Springbok coach Ian McIntosh with us. This Front Row Rugby episode appeared originally on YouTube. If you enjoyed this content, please consider subscribing and sharing with your friends. See you next time.